I'm really looking forward to uh, today. Maybe, do I say that every week? I'm sorry if I do. Um, what a privilege it is to be able to come and um, just talk about God's Word together. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we can make some sense. I want to get to Acts chapter 14 eventually. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time lingering with that uh, story that Abby read to us earlier. But uh, let me just say a few things before we get there. You can keep your finger there, and I promise you we will get there. We're thinking about popular culture, as you know. We're thinking about it through the eyes of the Bible story arc, which is, as we've seen, creation, fall, and redemption. And we're asking the question, what does popular culture look like from each of those perspectives? What would it be like from a creation perspective if there'd been no fall? How does the fall affect popular culture? We were thinking about that last week. Um, and then we're going to think about what popular culture looks like in the light of redemption. We haven't got time to recap all of what we've been saying. Uh, so please do have a listen online if you missed any of the others. Um, I think that would help. Um, in a nutshell, we've noted uh, some connections, I think. We've seen, and, and it's not a coincidence, I keep saying this, that we're thinking about the Trinity in our gospel communities during the week. We've seen that God being who he is affects and shapes how human beings are. And how human beings are obviously shapes how culture functions. And from the perspective of creation, it is good. Um, our trying God creates human beings in his image. And that means that humans we've seen are created and meant for worship, for relationship and for shaping our environment under God so that we can live in it. And that I suppose includes making meaning that we can dwell within. And so culture, we came up with this definition, hope, hope you got this, popular, it's not a very academic definition but I think this works, it works for me anyway, tell me if it works for you or doesn't work for you. Uh, that means that popular culture, in one sense, is about shared wows. We are made to kind of be in awe, ultimately, of God, and to do that corporately. Shared wow. That's. And when that happens, that kind of creates meaning that we can inhabit and live within. But due to the fall, this good design has been broken. And uh, even though the culture still works in this way, it's diverted and twisted away from what it should have done. It's like the machine still works, but it's used for the wrong job. And so popular culture, instead of being a... We talked, didn't we, about a jazz cycle of praise. Um what we see now is that worship is misplaced relationships so easily become alienated and our environment is frustrating and we were saying last time that the key to this is the idolatry really that substitutes God for some other created thing and we saw didn't we from Romans chapter 1 last week 
that this makes God angry. We were thinking about God's anger being the natural outflow of his love. We were trying to um, explore the fact that God cares when things get messed up and that this makes God angry. It's almost like God's amazing creation has been vandalised by evil. Um, there's a Christian philosopher called, what a great name this is, Cornelius Plantinga. Isn't that a great name? Wow. He, he writes that the fall was effectively the vandalism of God's shalom. And I thought that was so good. Put that on the slide as well. Think about that. The fall, sin and evil coming into the world. It's like God's shalom has been graffitied and vandalized. You know the word shalom, it means peace primarily, but it means so much more than peace. It includes the idea of wholeness, health, well-being. It kind of talk, it, it's like everything is in balance and how it should be. And sin and evil come into the world and vandalize God's shalom. Sin is like graffiti that's written all over God's creation. It vandalizes everything that's good, just, peaceful, fruitful and purposeful. Sin unbalances things invades things destroys things let me uh, give you an illustration from that greatly named guy Cornelius Plantinga he, um, he, he talks about uh, a film that came out in 1991 called The Grand Canyon has anyone seen that? early 90s film The Grand Canyon it's an interesting film given our definition of popular culture it's, it's, about, it's one of those films that's like about a group of people who seem to accidentally interact, you know, their lives cross. And they're dealing with racial issues, they're dealing with violence, abandonment, and they're trying to juggle relationships, career, and all that life seems to throw up for this diverse group of people. They end up going on a holiday together to the Grand Canyon to experience a shared wow they go to the Grand Canyon and the film kind of implies that what they need is not self-obsession but they need to kind of see that there's something else you know that's the whole point of going to the Grand Canyon it's bigger than all of them but anyway in this story there's a lawyer and one day he's driving his fancy car he gets stuck in a traffic jam and he tries to take a detour to avoid the traffic jam and he gets completely lost in the back streets and then nightmare of nightmares his fancy posh car breaks down in the back streets and it's, it's not long before he finds himself surrounded by thugs while he's waiting for the equivalent of the AA to turn up there are five guys five thugs who surround him and they're obviously going to do him over and nick his car and whatever else they've got in mind and just in time the guy from the AA equivalent arrives and these thugs complain to the driver you know you're interrupting we're, we're about to kind of kick this guy's head in can you just clear off and leave us do it and the AA guy takes the thug leader to one side and he speaks to the leader and he gives a pretty good definition of what sin is and does the film's not about this but this is how popular culture resonates isn't it this is what he says 
this is the driver, the AA man, to the thug leader. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And this dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. What a great definition of sin that is. It's not, it's not a Christian film. These are the kind of things we need to look out for, aren't they, when we look into popular culture. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Do you ever feel like that? You look into the world and you think, it wasn't meant to be like this. Everything's supposed to be different. Wouldn't it be great if, but somehow, something always seems to come along and mess up graffiti what was meant to be there it's been going on a long time and we never seem to learn do we from our mistakes each generation seems to make the same ones that the generation before made in a slightly different way it, sometimes it's like we're our own worst enemies isn't it even though we know what hurts us we still seem drawn to it like a, like a moth kind of being drawn to a flame the fall is a kind of vandalism of God's good creation and we've seen that this makes God rightly angry but it's not the whole story in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven but it is also true that his grace and mercy and kindness are also being revealed from heaven so I want to turn to the idea of redemption the Bible story teaches that we have what we might describe as a major heart problem uh, my, my dad apparently had a, a minor heart attack he didn't even know he'd had it recently but I'm not talking about that heart you know what I mean the real, the real you, the real me the heart, the, the inside of us and the Bible teaches that we have this heart problem if we went back to our story arc let me uh, sum this up with a verse from the Old Testament the prophet Isaiah says this about the human race we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned it's an interesting word that isn't it each of us has turned to his own way we're not what we were supposed to be we still work in a way but we're kind of turned to our own way it's not only things that are not the way we're meant to be but actually we too if we're honest we've turned from God to other things and the question is isn't it what has God done about that well the rest of this verse there's a little dot 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 there because there's another bit coming the rest of this verse says and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all who is the him in that verse 
Well, it's Jesus. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's response to our human turning away from him is not to crush us, but rather to pay our debts himself. To cover our losses. To take our sinful turning away on his own shoulders. We're speaking of the cross. And this is the heart of the Christian message of redemption, isn't it? That God in Christ is reconciling a, a rebellious world back to himself, bearing our sins, paying the price taking away all that stands between us and the great good news of the gospel therefore is that God loves and saves messed up broken people he knows exactly what we are better than we know ourselves and yet he loves us more than we could possibly dream of and gives his very self to save us that means that all that is broken can be fixed those who feel like they're on the outside in the cold can be brought in those who are guilty can find forgiveness those who are broken can be mended and put back together and healed there is hope and life and peace to be found not to be earned but to be received as a gift from this gracious kind God in a way we, we stand don't we in great danger but God's love reaches out to us and invites us to put our trust and faith in Jesus and I want to just pause here to underline for all of us here that it is not enough just to hear this is it it isn't enough to know people who know this what needs to happen is that one by one all of us individually need to come and respond for ourselves to what Christ has done by believing him and embracing him and living in the light of what he's done so God is angry with the vandalism done by us to his good world and yet there's also this amazing almost scandalous grace of redemption and this reality means that there is such a thing uh, that theologians call uh, this common grace have you heard that phrase we'll put that up there for, we'll leave that there for a little while common grace the common grace is the idea that God has not abandoned his world but he is kind to it and to us even though it's messed up and broken and there's kind of a kindness there that goes for everyone I just want to turn to two passages the first one briefly and then we'll go to Acts just turn with me to Matthew's Gospel chapter 5 and we'll just see this idea of common grace Matthew chapter 5 Uh, it's on page 970 in the Red Church Bibles 
Um, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost at the end. Um, well, no, it's not quite at the end. It's at the end of chapter 5, but it's probably in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus here is speaking about people loving their enemies. And so he says in verse 43, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Why should people do that? Well, the logic that Jesus uses is that he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your brothers what are you doing more than others do not even pagans do that be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect what Jesus is saying is that there is this idea of common grace it doesn't, it doesn't matter in one sense in this world now this morning if you are God's friend or his enemy the sun still rises the rain still falls we might say the crops still grow it's not like God segregates his friends over here and says I'm really going to bless them but all these wicked pagan people over here I'm going to kind of just really make the rain pour down on them that's not God is in a sense displaying his kindness to everyone indiscriminately there's a sense in which God loves his enemies he treats them in a way that they don't deserve. None of us deserve God's kindness. And yet God displays his common grace to all people. In other words, even in a fallen world, even in a vandalised world, God still displays his kindness and has built little signposts and signals of that into this fallen world there are signs everywhere that God is kind gracious and merciful so I, I want to suggest to you we were thinking about the fall last week but I want to suggest to you that this world is a little bit more complex and nuanced than we first thought God is revealing his wrath from heaven and yet, at the same time, he's also giving pointers to his kindness and grace. So there's two things going on. That brings us to Acts chapter 14. So if you've got your finger in the page, let's have a little look at this story. And then we'll draw one or two quick conclusions. Paul is on his first missionary journey here. He's travelling through what we would call Turkey. And... Um, he's been to a place called Iconium and he arrives at this town called Lystra um, he's not had a great time in Iconium and they had to flee from there and they get to this place called Lystra which was originally a military settlement um, but it, it, it developed into like a, a rustic market town um, if, if, you, if you can picture a map of like the Mediterranean if you think about where Cyprus is in the middle of the sea this place Lystra is inland directly above Cyprus in what we would call Turkey 
one, one of my little dictionaries says this the site of Lystra was identified only in 1885 and it's located in the hill country and surrounded by mountains it was a small country town in Paul's day and its main significance was as a Roman military post and for that reason it had been given the status of a colony in about 6 BC so this is a bit later on than that what, what's interesting about that small country town do you know who's from Lystra in the New Testament Timothy Timothy, young man, young Christian Paul's colleague imagine that, growing up in a rustic, countryfied place and later on Paul writes to Timothy when he's in the city cosmopolitan city of Ephesus trying to unravel a church that's in danger of exploding and poor Timothy sometimes people think that Timothy's quite a timid character but I, I, it's kind of uh, interesting that he grew up in a country place and ended up dealing with a really difficult urban situation so there's a little bit of that's an aside you can have that for free Paul comes to Lystra and what happens he heals a lame man um, a man crippled in his feet he had never walked lame from birth Paul, he's listening to Paul and Paul looks directly at him and Luke says he sees that he had faith to be healed and Paul calls out to him stand up on your feet and at that this man who was born crippled jumps up and begins to walk wow the crowd see what Paul does and they begin to shout out the gods have arrived the gods have come to visit us and they identified Paul and Barnabas as two Greek gods Hermes and Zeus now it's a coincidence this but last night as a family we've been promising Sam all week I don't know he, he's been we've got to watch Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief has anyone seen that film? Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief he's, we've got to watch it before he goes back to school I ordered it on Amazon and did it come? did it so I had to go and rent it for 99p from Blockbuster so when the, when the DVD comes if you want a spare Percy Jackson DVD might have to send it back but we managed to watch it as a family last night Percy Jackson Lightning Thief it's all about the Greek gods Percy Jackson is the son of one of them and Hermes and Zeus these Greek gods are in the film it's uh, quite an interesting film um, that's just an aside Hermes was the son of Zeus and he was known, interestingly, for being a sort of patron, patron saint of speech. So if you were an orator, Hermes was known as the messenger of the gods. Hermes was one of those Greek gods that was like a bridge between the gods and humanity. He was the one who was like, he would come and, and speak. And isn't it interesting that Luke says in verse 12 Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker the, the, when you get that little bit of background you can see what's going on the, Hermes was the, the god of speech partly um, 
what, what, what that says about Barnabas and Paul is interesting as well just this side that if Zeus was the dad it kind of implies that Paul was the younger man and that Barnabas was the older guy so kind of a little clue there as to their relationship as well now apparently there was a legend that Zeus and Hermes had visited the earth before in this region and no one knew who they were and no one had shown them any hospitality at all apart from one elderly poor couple who took them in and the gods as a favour to them transformed their little humble cottage into an amazing palace and flooded all the other nasty citizens away so always show hospitality so this poor couple they, they were rewarded and the rest of the people were devastated now this, this was a legend in this region now you imagine you think Zeus and Hermes have come to town this man's just been healed I don't think you're going to fail to show them hospitality are you when you've got that going on in the back of your mind so what happens the people start shouting in their native language the Lyconian language the gods have come to us in human form Zeus and Hermes they're right here again we don't want our valley to be flooded let's show them hospitality what happens the priest trots off he brings the biggest bulls he can find they put garlands around their neck come on let's sacrifice the gods we don't want to displease them we want to worship them and Paul and Barnabas are caught up in all of this backstory. They've just hailed this guy. And the people want to elevate them as Greek gods. What do you do with that? <laughs> I've preached in a few different places, but I've never had that sort of scenario. What do you do with that? Oh, no. And the, the thing is, as well, because they're speaking their native language, to start with, Barnabas and Paul haven't got a clue what's going on, have they? The crowds are cheering, they're waving their hands this is going well Barnabas but what are they talking about no idea and then the priest comes with the bulls I think I've got an idea and maybe they ask one of their friends what are they saying well they want to worship you you're the old guy you're Zeus you're the young guy doing all the talking you're Hermes wow what's really interesting about this I think we're thinking about culture what's the title of this series what's the story they go to this region countryfied place and the, what's the story the back story it's not our story the gods have come to town we don't want to be washed away let's show them hospitality Paul and Barnabas are caught up in this story it begins to dawn on them what's going on and they're horrified but what, what they want to do is communicate into this story their story you see that? these are pagan people worshipping idols and Paul goes in there and says you're all a waste of space you dirty does he? no what does he do? well they rush into the crowd tearing their clothes verse 15 
man why are you doing this we too are only man human like you we are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God he made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them in the past he let all nations go their own way yet he has not left himself without testimony he has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy even with these words they're difficult to keep in the crowd from sacrificing to them we don't believe you we think you're Zeus you can deny all your life we... very interesting let's just unpick this a little first of all he says to them we're bringing you good news that's very interesting in itself isn't it when they were claiming that he was Hermes messenger of the gods what does he say we're bringing you good news I'm not Hermes but I am a messenger so he kind of we're not gods but we're all human messengers and we've come to give you the best news you could hear but yeah so he's very positive but on the other hand he's very blunt isn't he he doesn't kind of mind political correctness or kind of upset anyone we've come to tell you that these pagan gods you worship are worthless pointless this is superstition guys not reality these guys aren't real this is just your anxieties playing out and you projecting them onto gods of your own imagination we've come to tell you about the living God the great creator the one who calls you from this to himself unless we think these people are old fashioned and a bit kind of superstitious as well I, I, I do come across many Christians and they'll say things like I'm having a really hard time at the moment God must be punishing me for something what I need to do is work harder go to church more read my Bible more more sacrifice it's not that different is it from these guys that isn't the gospel we don't bow down and worship little statues on our mantelpiece but we can easily get the wrong idea in our head but what is Paul's reasoning how does Paul seek to demonstrate that the living God has blessed him in the past he let all nations go their own way the ESV version says in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways his good creation is being vandalised and God very patiently allows them to walk in their own ways but he hasn't left himself without testimony he hasn't left himself without some kind of witness and what is that witness to a people who ignore him and live superstitiously even as if he didn't exist well he's shown you great kindness he has given you many good things 
He has even filled your hearts with joy. These are people who are slavishly worshipping idols instead of God. We might say they didn't know any better. But either way, God has extravagantly blessed them. And that, that verse 17 is the key, isn't it? He hasn't left himself without testimony. In other words, what I want to suggest to you is that in all of this, what Paul's saying is that all this enjoyment of life, all this goodness, all this kind of your heart's being filled with joy, is a sign. It is a witness, a testimony. It points to something greater. It points to the fact that it is God who has given you his common grace. What an amazing God. You've ignored him and he has filled your hearts with joy. You've been blessed and this blessing points to his kindness. He's kind to you because he longs for you to see things the way they really are. So the poor servant to them is effectively stop ignoring the one who is blessing you and stop relying on other worthless things and come and turn back to him. He is the very fountain of life that you all long for if only you could see it. You're all settling for something that is second best. <coughs> Paul's point is that all this goodness points to the giver. And the good, enjoyable things of life are like little signposts that point to God's kindness. Our lecturer, uh, Ted Turnell, puts it really well, I think, and I quote. A sunny day isn't just a sunny day. Good food isn't just good food. It is God's sunny day and God's good food. And he puts them there for a reason. Namely, as a way of showing what kind of God he is. And that repentance and reconciliation are possible none of this goodness points explicitly to the cross or the resurrection of Jesus which ultimately saves us but in an incredible way God's common grace points to his undeserved kindness he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve he lavishes his kindness on human beings who rebel against him and turn away from him and are ignorant of him and the whole world is filled with the evidence of this common grace what is Paul's conclusion this God has shown kindness to you it's very sad that the trouble they had in Iconium follows them to Lystra and having been revered as gods their enemies stir up the crowd and Paul ends up being stoned and left for dead. What's that all about? We bring you good news. Get out of here. They're leaving for dead. It's a hard job. 
that Paul has been called to do, isn't it? What are the implications then for popular culture? This is where we're getting to. Let's go back to our diagram. Bottom right hand corner, popular culture is therefore a messy mixture. (coughs) What do I mean by that? It is true that God is revealing his displeasure sometimes, but because of his kindness, things are nowhere near as bad as they would be if he allowed evil just to have free reign to graffiti and vandalise his creation. What is going on in God's world is that he is constantly preserving in this potentially dark culture signs of his grace and goodness and kindness. On the one hand, God's shalom is vandalised and yet at the same time there are things that can and do fill our hearts with joy. So when we look out into popular culture it shouldn't surprise us to see more than one thing going on, should it? We should be able to see some evidence of idolatry. The good things that God gives being twisted and perverted and used in ways that they were never intended to be used. But that isn't all that's going on. Because popular culture also contains all sorts of things that point beyond idolatry to God's grace and kindness. And this is one reason I think that even writers who are not Christians at all can produce books and films that are laced with good things and that even sometimes seem to reflect the gospel itself. What is that? It's an evidence of God's common grace. Even in a world that is twisted and marred and vandalised by evil, God has not left himself without witness. Despite the best efforts of evil, the marks of God's goodness can still be seen all around us. I remember last year we were looking at a little series on the armour of God. Do you remember? And I remember as part of our preparation for that, I was reading an American uh, minister called Tim Keller. I know some of you have read uh, quite a bit of Tim Keller. And he, he was making the point then, when we were thinking about the problem of evil, he was making the point very helpfully that often non-Christian people can think that Christians are really simple. You Christians are just, you're idiots. You know? Too black and white, too simplistic, too dogmatic. We, we are sophisticated, secular people. We don't go in for all that medieval dark ages nonsense. One of the words that I love most in the English language is the word nuance. It's a great word, that, isn't it? I've got no idea where it comes from. It sounds a bit French. Nuance. When we come to the Bible, we find that it is not simplistic at all, is it? The way the Bible describes and explains the world is very nuanced. This world is a really messy mixture now of goodness tainted by evil and of evil that can't quite prevent goodness from shining through. And this is because it's God's world, isn't it? 
We're made in his image. We're broken and there is an addictive power in sin, yes. It's within us, it's above us, it's all around us. And it's a wonder sometimes that the world doesn't just implode under the weight of it. And yet God has not abandoned us. And there are still signs of his fatherly care and generosity everywhere. So as we look out into our world and into popular culture, there are always going to be two voices that we hear, sometimes even at the same time. We were thinking last time about idolatry from Romans chapter 1, taking God's good gifts and making them into ultimate things. Like a child receiving presents at Christmas and then being completely unaware of the giver. You know, it's like, oh, this is brilliant. And mum and dad are ignored. Oh, Father Christmas, obviously. Plantinga suggests that not only is sin like an intruder that vandalises God's good, wholesome creation, but sin is also parasitic. You know what a parasite is? Pa- parasites can't live, can they, without like living on the back of something, some, something else. And idolatry works like this. Sin is never original. It can only exist by taking something that God has given that's good and twisting it into something else. You can see it in our diagram of of history. We won't flip back, but you remember creation, fall, redemption. You, You can't have a fall unless there's a creation. It wouldn't exist without the good thing being there first. Sin is like that, it's always an anomaly an intruder that has no life of its own think with me about the devil the devil himself was an amazing beautiful super intelligent angel he began good he was good and then he fell and now he uses his super intelligence and energy for evil purposes if you're familiar with the Harry Potter Harry Potter Harry Potter stories that would be a better name wouldn't it Harry Potter Harry Potter the dark lord he who must not be named he couldn't be an evil genius unless he was a genius to start with could he C.S. Lewis said in his book Mere Christianity a great book by the way He said this, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Goodness is just goodness. It is itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. It it can't exist on its own. So idolatry is parasitic because it takes the good, wholesome gifts of God and uses them wrongly it can't stand on its own two feet it always takes a good thing and twists it so I I think when we look into culture there will always be two voices one that is 
expressing the good things that are part of God's common grace to all people and the other voice that is expressing how those good things can be twisted and become idols we've been emphasising that popular culture works through stories the complication for us is that sometimes in these stories both these things are happening at the same time are they not? These stories are pointing to God's goodness, idolatry, God's goodness, idolatry, God's goodness, idolatry, at the same time sometimes. It's like the radio's tuned to two different stations at the same time. So as we look into popular culture, we should be able to say on one hand, that is really good. That's the way God has designed things. The fact that people yearn for this and long for this and crave this is good because God made us that way and we can affirm and uphold and rejoice in that but often we'll see and be able to say that is twisted though because it's exalting the gift and twisting it into something it was never meant to be and drawing people away from the giver can you see the kind of the delicacy of that what I'm suggesting is that popular culture is never simple because we are made in God's image and that image is marred popular culture will always be a messy mixture of grace and idolatry Uh, that means that as Christian people we should never look into popular culture and dismiss it out of hand blindly because there are signs of common grace there but it would be equally wrong to go to the other extreme and just consume it all uncritically and unthinkingly because there are also signs of idolatry there and we need to guard against both extremes we need to engage with it and learn to see how it speaks to people's hearts and desires and we need to see how the great good news of the gospel speaks into this messy mixture is that not exactly what Paul was doing here what's the story let me give you the story he speaks the gospel into that messy mixture of pagan people whose hearts are filled with joy let me close with one final challenge against all this backdrop let me ask you this question then what is the church if God is trinity and that leads to human beings being what they are made in God's image and that in turn means that culture is what it is even broken and twisted by the fall when we think about redemption suddenly the church becomes radically important because the church is also a culture that should reflect worship, relationship and meaning and the church effectively should be the greatest witness to a watching world of what culture really ought to be I want to suggest to you that the church the the church 
and, and our local church is part of that it's like a redemptive subculture in the midst of a larger culture so I want to ask you as we close what is our church's story our story is unfolding but we're part of a much bigger one we're not just people who know the truth but people who want to live out God's truth we want to show don't we that God's grace works do we not want to show and display the hope that we have in Jesus do we not want to show to the larger culture around us that the gospel actually gives us the things that we yearn for I want to suggest to you that that means that our church should be a messy place where our own idols are gradually being pointed out and rooted out and gradually being replaced with superior truths about God it means that we as people are gradually being untwisted gradually by God's grace being straightened out and drawn into his life we're gradually getting wise to the seductive parasitic vandalistic lies of evil and replacing them with the life and health giving truth of the good news that comes from God in Jesus church is not a building or somewhere that we just come on a Sunday but should be a living body of people who God has called to himself adopted into his family and a body of people who aren't perfect but who love Jesus and are serious about changing and growing and we're not meant to be doing this in a back street somewhere hidden away avoiding the real world we're called to live out our story as part of that big story right in full view of our culture let me close with a brilliant vision of church 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 Paul's writing here to another church and let's just see how this resonates with I hope everything that we've been saying he thanks God for them and then he says in verse 4 for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction you know how we lived among you for your sake you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia the Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia your faith in God has become known everywhere therefore we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us and this is the phrase they tell how you turn to God from what? idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath isn't that an inspirational passage? 
would that our church would reflect something of that great reality let's pray our loving Father God we thank you uh, so much for the things that you are teaching us about culture we thank you that you are a relational God we thank you that you are a loving Father God and we thank you so much for the plan of restoration, redemption that you have uh, worked out and executed in our world we thank you for Jesus the one who rescues us from the wrath to come we thank you for your kindness for your common grace and we pray that you would help us to respond to Jesus and that you would help us to realise how complex and, and messy our world is and we pray that you would help us to be a church that is a subculture a, a healthy grace fueled subculture of our bigger culture we pray that we would reflect Jesus that others would see your goodness and kindness that there would be forgiveness and love and warmth here in this place we pray that you would teach us to, to drink deeply uh, from your gospel so that we would love one another and so that that would ring out from us into the surrounding community we pray that you would fill us with your spirit that you would inspire our hearts and that you would help us to bring glory to your great name we ask it in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Amen oh,